welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show where we meet artists, travelers, and scientists from all over the world to talk about art, travel, and climate action. Hello and welcome, friends. Today, I'm talking with Jessica Riley Moman. I've followed Jessica's work for many years, and I hope you enjoy our conversation that takes us from her time as a field biologist on the largest solar project in the world to her time sailing around Latin America studying climate resilience and adaptation in coastal communities on a Fulbright scholarship to Mexico and Montenegro and also Maine. Jess even serenades us at the end. As it turns out, she's a very fine singer. She's a social scientist, a political ecologist, and a mixed media journalist. She's finishing her PhD in ecology and environmental studies at the University of Maine's Darling Marine Center. Originally from coastal New Hampshire, she now lives with her husband, daughter, horse, and two adopted dogs in mid-coast Maine. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, so Jessica Riley, I think a good place to start, I think a good place to start with you might just be in the middle. Um, so I want to start with the sailboat. And I think, as I recall, this is when you were applying for your Fulbright scholarship and you had this grand plan. And it, in my recollection, this just kept up unfolding and unfolding. Like you needed a boat and then you found one, but then you had to learn how to fix it. and it just went on and on. Then you had to learn Spanish. So you did that. <laughs> anyway, tell us that. Let's start there. Let's start with the boat. Okay. You know, so I think to get to the boat, though, we have to go back a tiny bit further, which was when I was living in my truck in the Mojave Desert. Oh, yeah. Okay. For sure. Let's start there. Let's well, start because there. That, that was sort of the motivation for the boat to go from desert to ocean maybe doesn't sound so logical, but I was working on the largest thermal solar project in the world. And I was the endangered species biologist keeping track of all of the desert tortoises they were having to remove from this five square mile project. So I was watching- What's the name of that project? It's called Ivanpah, Ivanpah Solar That's Electric Generating Station. And um, I was there from when they first broke ground to when they started producing power. But over that course of time, I watched this beautiful chunk of desert get destroyed. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a better way to save the planet than by destroying the planet. Fast forward. So, a couple so yeah. I, yeah, well, we're going to get to the boat, but now I'm distracted by this. Um, <laughs> because solar, I mean, we hold solar up as such a model and, and it has so much potential. I mean, if I've been learning about how if we if we can um, store solar and ship it better, we could use it for um, industrial processes if we could get the heat high enough. I mean, solar feels to me like one of these wonderful things. But now you're saying I was out here in the desert and it was destroying the earth to put this solar thing together. Yeah, it was. And I think for me at the time, um, this is it. This is utility scale solar, right? So it's going to go hooked onto the grid and then the electricity um, really goes, you know, a couple hundred miles away to Los Angeles. And I thought maybe if we had distributed generation, you know, where we're putting those solar panels on rooftops in Los Angeles, that might be a better way to do this than by just taking these chunks out of the desert. 
um, where other creatures and critters are living. Of course, it's much more complicated than that. So that's what I learned when I went back to graduate school at the Energy and Resources Group, where I did my master's and started my PhD, was that- That was at Berkeley. That was at Berkeley. And uh, yeah, it, it really, it comes down to that there are a lot of trade-offs. And so I think that this is one of the ways in which um, science and technology maybe can be a better communicator and maybe a little better reciprocator with their environment too, is um, to be clear about what those trade-offs are. Um, and I think people who are involved in the process really do understand that because there's a lot. I mean, that Ivanpah project invested millions in trying to reduce their impact. And so in some ways, they were a model case. Um, and you were, I'm remembering all this now. I mean, you were um, scouting for tortoises and moving them. Is yes. that right? Yep. So I walk around either with other biologists or with construction crews and make sure that they didn't um, kill or maim any endangered desert tortoises. And I, I also and how thought, many how many tortoise people were on the team? Gosh, it must have been maybe sixty or seventy. Hmm. Okay. I thought you were going to ask how many tortoises we found. In the initial statement, they thought there were going to be. 20 to 50 tortoises. Um, there ended up being over 420 or 450. So it was a lot more than had been anticipated. Um, it was really a beautiful piece of desert. You would pick up the tortoise and walk him to the other side of a fence? <laughs> That's what I would do with lizards and snakes and kangaroo rats. But with tortoises, they have this very specific protocol you have to follow. And also, they're mostly in burrows. So you have to find their burrow, um, get them or dig them out of the burrow. Uh, and then they go through this whole quarantine process where they and they usually overwinter in these manufactured burrows. And then they would get tagged and maybe radio tagged, all of these different things, um, and released in uh, a nearby section of the desert, and then monitored for the next five to 10 years to see if they survive. Holy cow. Yes. Um, I knew you during this time, but I did not <laughs> ask enough questions, obviously. So that is incredible. So the company then paid for all these biologists to, they didn't give you great accommodation, it sounds like, if you were living in your truck. But they were paying you to be out there weeks at a time and do this. And then do they pay also for the 10 years to monitor the survival of the tortoise? They do. This is all part of their environmental impact statement. Um, and honestly, you know, this project was exemplary in going above and beyond. But a lot of this is required because the desert tortoise is an endangered species. So anybody who did this kind of development in the desert would have to would have to do this. In the United States anyway. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, only in the US. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think um, I'm just like chewing on that a little bit. I'm imagining these vast swaths of desert, like I've seen these kind of aerial images of desert in the Middle East, for example. And your initial thought when you look at that is like, amazing. So much solar power just yeah. for the taking. Yeah. But there is a whole ecosystem there that um, there is that trade-off. I think this is holds true of deserts and oceans too. When, you know, if people aren't exposed to it or they don't see what's under the surface, uh, it's 
it's a lot harder to identify with what you're losing um, if you pave it with solar panels or anything else. Um, yeah, so just being uh, aware of that uh, is a really big first step. Mm-hmm. So, okay, you're in your truck, you're living in the desert, and then you decided to go back to graduate school. And then what? The and sailboat. So the sailboat, um, I thought, okay, um, based on my work as a biologist where uh, I was outside all, all the time, um, and then I had also done international work where I get to talk to people all of the time, I ended up becoming really interested in how um, climate change was affecting people individually um, and people in places where maybe their voices weren't being heard or represented, especially rural areas and coastal areas and some of the places I had worked and connected with like Mexico, Central America, uh, throughout Latin America, really. Um, but I wanted to do this in a way that was as low impact as possible and still tapped into um, that adventure that had been a part of my life as a guide and a field biologist. And I also wanted to be able to bring my dog. And so I don't think most people would say, what's the easiest <laughs> way I could do this? I think probably most people would, you know, okay, I'll drive to these different places. But um, I think the requirement that you had to bring the dog says a lot about you. Uh, and so I spent a year and a half, you know, in graduate school looking for a sailboat that I could afford um, and also talking to my colleagues at the Energy and Resources Group at Berkeley and then eventually professors saying, okay, you know, how can I do this? Um, and I first, you know, I found funding first through Fulbright and then next through the Institute of Current World Affairs, which was a, a, a journalism fellowship, really. So I had three years. Um, and I, uh, my dog actually passed away a month and a half before I bought my sailboat. But right around the time I um, adopted another dog who ended up being the perfect dog to take with me. Um, and I also met my future husband in the boatyard once I acquired this boat. And thank goodness I did because I was characteristically in way over my head. Um, I just, you know, ignorance is bliss. So I was like, ah, it's outdoors, it's systems. Um, how, you know, you just have to have a thick skin. How tough can sailing be? Um, so. But you didn't know how to sail. I mean, you I grew not. up in New no. Hampshire. No. I know you as a bicycle person, an outdoor kind of mountain, of course, water, surfing. Yeah, I wasn't, I, very, I wasn't a very good surfer either. I mean, I was, I was a surfer, um, but, you know, I had done um, rock climbing. I had done these sports that sort of pushed me. Um, uh, yeah, they, there was, you know, there was risk involved and I was, had the, you know, mental capacity and I thought, oh, I can do that with a sailboat. But um, yeah, there's a lot and more that, going on with a 40 foot sailboat than would initially appear. The impetus for the boat was to be able to get closer to coastal communities so you could study them from a climate resilience perspective. Yeah. So I wanted to understand 
perspectives on climate adaptation um, at the time. And so I wanted to go and talk with individuals um, in these really remote, usually fishing villages, um, but some were mining or tourism places, um, and see how people were perceiving uh, climate change. And I thought that I was going to go sail around and ask people about sea level rise. And they were going to mm. say, yeah, it's really a big issue here. And uh, one of the neat things about social science is that you ask questions and then people answer them in the way that they want to. And if you're a good social scientist and you let them do that and then figure it out as you go along, like um, if I asked, so what ended up happening was I was asking people, you know, what are the physical impacts of climate change on your life? And they were like, well, let me tell you about how we need better education and healthcare in our Oh, family. isn't that fascinating? Yeah. So, so you might have been a little bit aggravated at the start because you were like, no, I want to talk about climate. Well, I could see that. I mean, I some my my interview somewhat made people talk about climate change, but it opened my eyes to the ways in which, as like a Western trained scientist, mm -hmm. um, I was perceiving climate change in this specific way, thinking about these impacts um, like sea level rise. Um, when in in fact, the the way that people were were able to document it and adapt to it was more were these impacts that I had not even imagined, like seasonal shifts, like um, the frequency and intensity of rainfall. You know, these were having already really, this was 2016 through 2018, and these were already having really big impacts on folks. We also sailed during mm -hmm. a really powerful El Nino year. And so um, that was having, that was just we, havoc on tourism in, in the region. The we is you and your husband who you met in the boatyard fixing yeah. your boat. Yes. Josh, right. Josh Roman. Now we are both, now we are Josh and Jess Riley Moman. And uh, I love that. we picked a dog up on the way as well when we were in Panama. So we became two humans, two dogs, um, and ended up with a little, uh, a little girl as well. <laughs> Um, it's so, it's so like serendipity and hard work and like, it feels so obvious, but, um, when you're moving through it, it wasn't necessarily obvious, was it? No, it was really, um, honestly doing research by sale. If you want to like get a lot of data going by sailboat is really not the way to go. Um, I think, I think if I had known a little bit more about, anthropology methods and methodology like ethnography and sort of mm. keeping track and I essentially was doing this because I was functioning as both both a researcher and a journalist so I did have mm -hmm. this sort of ethnographic log but with a journalism uh, focus but just to keep track of the experience because um, the way that you know, I thought I was just collecting data and learning about people and then I could amplify their voices. But really, it changed me immensely, this whole um, process. And that's, I think, an important part of being um, an engaged scientist or an engaged researcher is to allow that change to occur and allow for um, the people I met to steer the course of my research. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm curious. So they... So you ask about sea level rise and they start telling you about education and that, <laughs> where did that, 
where did that take things for you? Well, ultimately, I just became better tuned into how all the different layers of change in people's lives um, and the way that historical context and sort of situatedness can influence um, how people are able to adapt. You know, most of the time I would ask people, do you adapt to these changes? And they'd laugh and they'd say, how can I adapt to climate change? It's out of my control. And in the next sentence, they would say, um, yeah, but I've, I've switched jobs and now I, you know, work three jobs and I work in tourism instead of just as a, a shrimper, you know, these kinds of big changes that people have made because climate for them is inextricably linked. It's part of their lived environment. So it's linked with their families, their ways of living, um, with their work and jobs and um, to have it be enmeshed in that way. And, and you know, as a researcher, I just want to pick it apart. I want to disentangle it. But in live, when it's lived in practice, it's not that simple. And so to give people that space to, to say, hey, you know, you're talking about climate change. Like I once had this guy in Panama where I was asking him these climate questions and he slammed his fist down on the table. He was like, no, what we need here is better healthcare so people can stay here without having to hike over the mountain for a day just to get to mm. healthcare, you know? And mm. for him and for me, I started to understand, you know, this is, this is part, you know, the, the solution is not necessarily, it's not gonna be a seawall, right? Um, it's mm. going to be better services, um, better connection with other communities, uh, all these all these different things that can make this community um, resilient. And I hesitate to use the word resilient, even as um, that is somewhat how I tag myself as studying climate resilience, because um, I think that the way in which I study it uh, is really it's asking questions. So I'm saying, you know, resilience for whom and at what cost to who else? So um, thinking about, you know, how climate adaptation projects, how they can meet these needs that were expressed by people to make them more uh, feel like they're more adaptive, to feel like they can stay um, in these places that, that are their homes or in some cases transform. Like I, I think I should probably define um, climate resilience. So I'm coming from this background. I'm trained as an ecologist and I've gone this way of social science. And, uh, but the definition that I use is from social ecological systems thinking. And this is like a, a, a group of researchers um, who really it started as a group of ecologists who were systems thinkers, right? So thinking about how everything is connected within a specific system um, and this also has these cool overlaps with complexity thinking and complex adaptive systems. But essentially, there's this definition to work with, which is the ability to absorb disturbance and maintain function or transform. So that is what, you know, I use as the, this definition of resilience. But there's a lot of problems with this as well as benefits. But, you know, resilience, I think, as a word is um, here's another big fun word is polyvocal. I mean, just meaning that it has a lot of different meanings for people and that can both be an advantage and can trip it up. But I think one of the fundamental challenges with talking about resilience is that the word as a core concept 
a little bit speaks to going back. And that gets back to these questions of, you know, if we're going to go back to the way things were, if we're going to bounce back and be resilient, then to what space are we bouncing back? You know, who is that good for? Who loses out in that process? And this gets at, you know, some of that political ecology framing, which is looking at the power and control and access to resources. Um, and that is the that is essentially the what I learned from um, the folks that I talked with on this this sailing adventure um, was that uh, about some of these inequities and and how to think about them and how to how to bring this more to um, the climate resilience and adaptation space. Oh, Jessica Riley, so much! I took so many notes in this <laughs> little rant. Um, Okay, so one thing that I think um, is part of one of the hard truths in what you're saying there is when you said the solution is not going to be to build a seawall, for example. I think this is a really, um, this is a powerful and hard truth for investors and politicians. It's like it would be so much easier if all we had to do was find a billion dollars or whatever the number is and build a seawall. But what you're saying is the, the, the pathway to helping people make it through climate change because we are warming and, you know, I'm all about trying to stop the warming or keep it at 1.5 degrees of warming, but we are warming. And so things are going to have to be done to help people and your answer in there is like, it's got to be systemic kind of solutions that address all these thorny social problems around education and healthcare. And I also kind of am putting my own um, thought in here, but from like the work that we did in some of our uh, tourism development work, I remember uncovering with you this issue of um, land tenure and land rights and who has rights to the land and these things, you know, all of that really matters for indigenous people, right? Yeah. And even, I mean, there's, there's ocean rights too. And that becomes, you know, it's something about which I'm not an expert, (laughs) but I do have to know a little bit about and trying to understand it in different countries um, but I think one of the best descriptions that I heard it recently was of a Maine fisherman. And he was talking about, you know, imagine the oceanscape, every foot of that ocean in at least, you know, for the lobster fishery and quite often in many fisheries, every space is occupied already by someone who um, has some sort of ownership of that space, whether they formally own it um, the, some sort of fishing rights to it or development rights, or if it's just somewhere where they have been operating for, for a specific amount of time. So if you go ahead, and this gets back to the mitigation piece and, and offshore renewables. So if you go and stick a floating turbine um, out in someone's space, that's, that is taking some space, that ability to harvest from the ocean. It's like putting it in a farmer's field and then suddenly they lose a bunch of acreage. And so it has this very specific impact, which potentially upsets um, an existing balance of power 
for a bunch of communities that fish in that area. How do you summarize your like your thinking around climate action and our chances for, you know, we each have little kids. What do you think about? I think that it's just action that you have to take. I just heard, you know, on the radio a day or two ago, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, he was quoted as saying something like, we are waging war on nature and this is suicidal. And I thought that that was a great um, quote. And I know that doesn't sound positive either, but I think that it's really important to note that there are there are a zillion ways to go about this. And so uh, to go about climate mitigation, adaptation, resilience. And I get frustrated sometimes when I read about how, you know, just one person can't have an impact in, um, in their personal actions. And you really should just lobby your senators. And I just don't buy this. I think that this disempowers people. So you are kind of a lifelong traveler. And I recall, am I right that when you were like 18, you did a, a, a wilderness, like a Knowles course, a wilderness survival wow. thing? Yes, I was. Yeah. Tell about that. Like, is that kind of the starting point of your adventure travel career? Oh, you know, I mean, I grew up on this intertidal river in New Hampshire, and I just wanted to be out on it exploring. And I first, I don't know if it was just my contrary nature, but you know, we had like this little Boston whaler and I didn't want a motor. I wanted a canoe. And so I like bargained with my father for years. And then he finally got me this canoe with a couple of bat- patched bullet holes in it. And I would take my dog to the other side of the river where there were no houses and get covered in ticks and see see beautiful flowers, you know, things like that. And so when my my father passed away unexpectedly when I was 19, and then six months later, I put myself on a, I think it was a month-long Knowles course in Idaho. Because then you went, I mean, you, I met you through through tourism. Like when I met you, I think you were a mountain bike guide and we worked together in Montenegro and in Mexico on nature tourism strategies. And, um, but we weren't, I mean, I was looking back through the files, like the first, and I think you worked on these with us on, uh, climate, climate change in the brick M in Brazil, India, Mexico, um, so we were like observing the, the overlap or the impact of climate change on tourism and people who worked in tourism, but I don't think we were really, I mean, I didn't, climate was not at the top of my list 10 years ago, even though like looking back, I can see that all the countries I've worked in, this was always there. And I think it was, I don't know, I, I guess it was like building up to something, building up to this, to now. But um, I I guess, tell me how travel led you to climate or did travel lead you to climate? When did climate start? When did that become a a headline for you? That's an interesting question. And so I think that it was this sort of slow process for me. and, And it was enabled by traveling to different places and talking to people and getting some idea honestly, of the inequities around the globe. Um, And it gave me this interest in amplifying voices that are underrepresented. And 
I think that, you know, just like, uh, like I've kind of been saying, climate change and you know, environmental and social justice, they're just inextricably linked. And so um, by talking with people in Montenegro, in Mexico, um, in Argentina, like the, what I was learning through those tourism and tourism development um, experiences and talking with individuals really, and the most subtle and slow and perfect learning ways, you know, for, I think for both of us too, it was, you know, a decade or more of um, these voices that sort of, you know, finally pile up to the point Mm -hmm. where like, wait a minute, I've been hearing about this all the time. It came to a head for me at Ivanpah at that solar electric generating station, thinking about specifically about climate and how it can be um, of, you know, climate mitigation and adaptation, how it can benefit people in places um, with as little harm as possible. I am, I'm noticing the time and we have to wrap it up, Jessica Riley. I feel like um, there's like swaths of really funny things about you that I did not cover in this conversation and I'm a little annoyed. Let's just briefly like give me give me your favorite sort of like traveling snafu story. I know you have a thousand to choose from. Or or if you just want to tell like one of your favorite sort of traveling beautiful moment stories, we can take that too. I have a memory of you you know, dancing in the rain in Montenegro, that is sort of like a beautiful image for me, but I bet you have some more entertaining things to share with us before we wrap. I have no recollection of dancing in the rain in Montenegro, but I do remember that um, when it would snow in Montenegro, I brought three different pairs of skis and one of them were my skate skis. And because they didn't really plow or get around to plowing for a few days at least, then I would take, once people had driven on the roads, it made for great skate skiing. And so I would skate this loop around town and people would look at me like I was just a total crazy person, which I was. Colossian. And yeah, in Colossian. And I remember one time on this, this you know, maybe a mile or two that it would take me to get around town. And I was on the backside of town, kind of in the woods on this road and all the power went out in town. And I couldn't see anything. Um, And so here I was on my skis on a road I could barely see. And so I thought, I guess I'll get back eventually, you know, in not very much clothing because I'm exercising pretty strenuously. And eventually I I did get back to where I could see a little bit. But but that was just um, one one of many. Yeah. I remember neighbors noticing and commenting on like... (laughs) Yeah, I remember that. Before we go, I ask everybody, what kind of music are you listening to these days? And what what did you listen to in the past? If we were going to do like early Jess and modern Jess, what would the music be? Oh, Jessica Riley. I almost forgot the highlight of this whole thing is your ukulele. Right. I think it would be really cool if you would do a little bit on the ukulele for us. Um, I bet you've got it sitting there. You know, the music that I listen to now, it's all frozen, frozen to Elena of Avalor. (laughs) 
Like if you look at my Spotify, <laughs> I just listen to music with my daughter and we dance and we sing. Um, but I did just, I was part of this recent class at UMaine where we were asked to make a 12 song playlist that was our ex- expressive of our experience during COVID. And mm. so, I mean, and she, there were no limits to it. Like it could be songs that you listen to a lot or songs that felt representative. So I made this playlist and it was really fun thing to do and a great way to reflect on the time. But I do want you to sing and play on the ukulele to <laughs> send us off on this conversation. So this is a song I really enjoy by a band I really enjoy, The Wood Brothers, who I know Christina is oh, very familiar with. I love um, The Wood Brothers. So it's called River Takes the Town. Mm. We'll see. I haven't played my ukulele in months and months. Hopefully my fingers won't fall off. I hope the levee in Shreveport does what it's supposed to do. Cause the rain keeps coming Yeah, the rain keeps coming I must have called you 99 times But I couldn't get through Yeah, the rain keeps coming Yeah, the rain keeps coming And the rain keeps coming Yeah, the rain keeps coming Ever for certain till the levee breaks down, the water comes in and the river, the river takes the town. Um, Jessica Riley Moman, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for having me, Christina Beckman. 